Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host... Liel Zahaviasa. How you doing, Liel? Good, how are you? Okay, we have kind of a heavy topic for today, talking about the position of American Jews and Jewish history and things that are changing. And we have a... We are honored to have a very special guest. Would you please introduce him, Leo? Of course. So our guest today is Professor Shalom Lappin. Uh, he's a professor of natural language processing at Queen Mary University of London, professor of computational linguistics at the University of Gothenburg, and emeritus professor of computational linguistics at King's College London. He's a fellow of the British Academy and a member of the Academia Europrea as he taught at universities in Israel, Canada, and United States, and the UK, and lived in these four countries. He has also written on polit- uh, political and social issues for uh, Descent, Fathom, Engage, and Norm blog. Welcome. Thank you. We really appreciate you taking the time. Now, I want to get to your Fathom piece, but would it be okay for you just to take, is there a, a, a short, quick version that explains your field in linguistics and what it is you do? I mean, I realize that's sort of an unfair question. A, a kind of um, a, a semi-humorous uh, blog for the British Academy because they asked that, and I, I drew on my the experience that I have trying to explain it to my four children. <laughs> so as they were growing up, they're adults now. They would ask me what I do, and I, I would you know sort of take them to the lab where I work and show them, and they would say, oh, so so it's like Star Wars, or you teach uh, computers how to talk. Um, not really. But, uh, it's essentially using um, uh, mathematical and computational models uh, to uh, program um, computing devices to uh, analyze natural language. Um, so much of what you're doing these days and a great deal of AI is powered by some natural language technology or other things like machine translation. When you use Google Translate, mm-hmm. you use um, language models that are developed by computational linguists. Uh, uh, much of the dialogue interaction that you do and that frustrates you when you have to deal with uh, um, Elal and other kinds of companies uh, are coming um, from work that my colleagues are doing. Uh, one is uh, towards engineering, so trying to get engineering products that are useful. Um, and the other is uh, is understanding, the, which, and which is more the area that I've been involved in which is trying to use uh, these models to understand better how, how people actually use natural language and what its, what its formal properties are. And if you abstract away from a lot of the noise, what it really looks like is a communicative, uh, symbolic, and mathematical system. So that's more or less what I do. Wow, well, um, thanks. You're making our lives, I mean, you're right. Sometimes it's frustrating, but sometimes it makes life easier. So- well, There's uh, been it, a lot of advances in the field yeah. lately, but there's been a lot of, unfortunate effects from some of the technology that, that I and my colleagues produce uh, that you're very well aware of on social media platforms. And some of it, in fact, feeds into the that uh, we're about to discuss. Yeah. Okay. So I, I guess I was trying to uh, find a lighter tone to enter into, but but your piece uh, was definitely, I th- we thought, very well argued, but also very troubling. So I will put a link to readers to go to read the piece in full. So I guess if the reader, wa- if the listeners want to read it first, and then we can have our discussion. But if they don't want to, and they just want to listen, how would you summarize? I mean, uh, there were a few parts of of your the case you were making, 
How would you uh, present that in, in sort of a brief summary? Okay, well, first of all, I, I should point out that um, take, take the piece with a certain grain of salt. I'm not saying the, that what, I, what I'm, I'm not making predictions. As we know, after the destruction of the Second Temple, who prophecy was left to uh, fools and, uh, and, and the mentally challenged. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not in either category, so I avoid prophecy. I didn't take, uh, by the way, I didn't take it as prophecy, and I didn't take your conclusions as authoritative, but I thought that the way you were thinking it through was the model that I wanted, that I found enlightening. In other words, it, it, it's not so much the conclusions, but the process of how you were working things through that I thought was enlightening. Okay, so as we all have North American accents, the three of us. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a Canadian um, with a heavy American component of my family coming through my mother's. Um, but then uh, I'm also an Israeli, and I assume that you are in a similar situation, probably on the American side. Mm -hmm. So probably older than all of you. But uh, growing up, we had this notion of uh, North America being a very different kind of place than the places in Europe and the Middle East and North Africa that our, that our families were coming from. Um, that somehow history had changed drastically for us. And that was true. Um, um, if I compare uh, my experience with that, my grandparents on both sides, uh, both in Canada, and who came from Poland and in, Ru and in the United States, who came from Russia, escaping uh, pogroms and, uh, and exclusion and racism. Um, growing up in Canada, um, there were traces of anti-Semitism, but I knew virtually nothing of what they knew, uh, except by account. It was a mm -hmm. different kind of experience. Um, and um, I think that a North American Jews, American Jews in particular, because I wasn't speaking about the Canadian experience, which is a little bit different, but the New American Jews had um, a kind of life which Jews in the diaspora had never had before. Um, if you consider diaspora, the Galut, the Tfutzot, of 2,500 years, starting perhaps in Alexandria as the first large, uh, and then Bavel, these are very large, um, and, and then Rome, and then, and then Greece, um, as major diasporas and spreading into Europe and throughout the Arab world. Um, it was a very um, problematic life. Uh, even in times when 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 Israel existed as a as a as a sovereign commonwealth or semi-sovereign commonwealth, um, it was uh, there were very good times, but there was never a time when Jews were not a, a subordinated minority. When they came to North America, they, over a period of a hundred years, achieved the level of integration in an open society that they hadn't before. Now, an open society, of course, me is is qualified. It's for people who are perceived. Largely, uh, largely for people who were perceived as white and enjoying a certain kind of identity. And Jews became passed from being uh, perceived as a Middle Eastern people and a minority uh, to being perceived as uh, just another immigrant group, um, in perceived largely as white, not which certainly many of us aren't, according to the American racial code. But um, in that context, we, we uh, arrived at a level of integration that wasn't possible in the past. Um, and we assumed that, that somehow the basic institutions of American democracy and uh, of um, life in a, in a free society were permanent and that they wouldn't change. Even in times when the politics were bad or not to our liking, when things were... Uh, in turmoil as they were in the period of the Depression, 
or in the period of in the 30s or in the period of the 60s when there was major social conflict. It didn't impact directly on us as Jews. Uh, 30s perhaps did uh, because of immigration laws mm-hmm. which prevented uh, Jewish refugees from escaping the Nazis. Well, but that didn't directly affect the citizens themselves. It affected their relatives. Exactly. It affected their families, but yeah. not them. Yeah. But was it possible to, to see... <sighs> A kind of seamlessness in in one's life that um, where you could preserve your Jewish identity without having to pay a price as you had in the past of exclusion. I have, you know, I think over the past 10, 15 years, 20 years, things have changed. And they've started to change as American democracy has started to unravel. And the Trump years um, brought to a fore. Um, a, a threat to the basic assumptions of American democracy, which I think have always been there. Um, I mean, America has been far less stable and far less democratic than one, than one assumes. If you look at the history of the, uh, from the Civil War up to the Civil War, the Civil War and past, there are things there that um, pose very serious challenges to some of the mythology of American exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. But surely during the Trump years, the, the consensus on which much of American democratic institution and practice uh, was conducted uh, start, has started to come apart. Um, I, you know this as well as I do. I don't have to recount the details of... Um, uh, the shatterings of, of norms to the structures of how a democracy functions. It's not just the policies, or the, but it's the actual whether it's disregarding of rules or approaches, but the the, the norms that allow a civic government to function and do yes. its job are, are not working. That's right. Um, uh, I think that you see um, the concept that free, free and, and um, elections of the sort that, that, that have been conducted uh, in the past, even when vote suppression went on, that at least the counting of the vote, vote was something that was sacred, that was shattered um, by the big lie that, um, that uh, election fraud was committed when it wasn't, and it's clear that it wasn't, um, uh, the um, various, the, the, the use of, of um, racist rhetoric as, as a part of the political mainstream, all of these things have become sort of standard in parts of, of, of uh, American public life. Now, the roots of this are very deep. I don't think that it, it happened only under Trump. I think Trump brought to the fore many, many kinds of disturbing themes that were there before. But white supremacy and the idea that uh, democracy is secondary to ethnocentric concerns or ethno-nationalist concerns became respectable and part of the political mainstream where they hadn't before. Uh, well, not not in our lifetimes, really. I mean, or I don't know if in our entire lifetime, but certainly in, in in recent political memory in the United States, both parties rejected racism explicitly. Whether you know wh- whatever the policy approaches were to dealing with economic problems, but like Ronald Reagan spoke out very clearly. I remember Bob Dole pointing to the door at the Republican convention, saying, "You know, racist. If you want to use the Republican Party as your shelter, there's the door." Like well, that was, yeah. But I think what went on in the Republican Party from at least uh, the Nixon era on was a, a, a funny kind of duality, and I'm not too sure it was absent from the Democrats either. Which is that that um, um, racism was used quite consciously in the campaign methods, but it mm-hmm. was not 
wasn't rhetorically acceptable, yeah. That's right. You couldn't say explicitly what you were doing, but you were appealing to white resentment from from a squeezed middle and lower middle class, uh, working class, rural class group. But when you got into power, you ruled as a kind of uh, internationalist neoliberal government, uh, of which uh, sort of explicit racism was certainly not part of the was not part of the the action. Um, uh, there was a lot of neglect, but that's another issue. Well, um, and, I, and, this, I, and I agree with you that you could argue that you, the Democrats used similar tactics, but not they didn't. Yeah, just from yeah. different directions. Yeah. Um, on, on, on the other hand, on the and, and the left, which was uh, in America as opposed to say Europe, even the reasonably radical left was generally um, free of extreme um, anti-Israel hatred and Zionism, except for fringe groups. Now, I, I grew up as a 60s leftist, leftist as part of the Zionist left, which was always, which was always a natural thing until, until after 67, when it became very difficult. Mm-hmm. But if you were not part of the radical left, then and, and this was a very small fringe group, um, anti-Zionism certainly was not a major concern. Um, there would be criticism of Israel, and I was one part of the founding generation of Shalom Achshav, mm-hmm. uh, and um, active in groups like um, Meretz, etc. Uh, at the time, Ratz and Shelley. But uh, in North America, um, even the kind of left Zionist view was often looked askance at as excessively critical. Mm-hmm. Um, anti-Semitism, conspiracy theories in which Jews figured, was not part of the left. Um, I think it is and certainly not the mainstream left. Um, mm-hmm. Even even on the radical left, the the anti-Zionism was 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 uh, carefully curated to avoid uh, the kind of uh, the kind of the kind of crude conspiracy theories which are now uh, commonplace. Um, and the 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 idea of Israel and and taboo an international pariah, a colonialist focus, not amongst liberals. Uh, it has, in fact, become orthodoxy, but and it has spilled into explicit anti-Semitism in large parts of the left. Uh, this stuff has been going on again for a, a long period of time, particularly in academic world. Um, interestingly enough, you, and characteristically enough, you'll see the left and the right often trading in very similar kind of imagery with respect to conspiracy and anti-globalism. Uh, and I think the problem here is that Jews get caught right in the middle of this. And this has not happened before in, in, in North America and the political mainstream. That, uh, and, but it, does, it has happened in other places in the world. And the reason that people might be reacting to the article with discomfort is that it's, it's a shock to think that the exceptionalism in which we had lived as American or Canadian or North American Jews, that this may be waning, that this possibly is no longer defining the um, political uh, framework within which uh, we existed and with a fair degree of comfort outside of history. I would say it's the first time that a Jewish community was able to look on Jewish history abroad as something that they were not directly affected by. And that I don't think this is any longer the case. I think that uh, um, it's not clear what's going to happen in the next two years, but the instability that is shaking America has put Jews back into a role where they're caught between competing economic and political factors, uh, emerging extremism, uh, that puts them in a highly vulnerable position. 
Uh, and and this is this is taking a lot of getting used to because the traditional role of American Jews has been uh, sponsors and benefactors of Jews in need abroad and supporters of just causes within America. And this is no longer the role that they are able to play with comfort. Um, and it's taking time to become used to it. So individual events which could be treated as exceptional in the past have become part of a pattern which is increasingly threatening and it's not clear what's going to constrain it. The reason it's, it's particularly of concern is because it is shaped by much deeper economic and social forces that are starting to pull America apart as a cohesive democratic society. And we've been there before when societies are pulled apart and we're in the middle. Of the, the fact that we are well integrated is often the very point of weakness and that we are successful that has rendered us um, before, prior to that, invisible and then all of a sudden extremely visible. Uh, we become agents of privilege and of manipulation in, in this kind of mythology um, of the competing extremist ideologies. We become the locus of manipulation of power, the puller of levers, etc. This is a very dangerous situation to be in. In that um, weird horseshoe of left and right coming to see us as this representation of the scapegoat of what evil is driving the problems that affect society. Yeah. That's right. And, and we've seen it in Europe. And well, your argument only, isn't that this is really unprecedented. The argument is this is all too well precedented. That's exactly right. But yeah. it's also part of our history in, in, in the Arab world, too, and in the mm -hmm. Islamic world. I, I'm always a little wary, and I, I'm sure you are, too, when somebody, you know, to me, the Ameri that the American Jewish experience is so exceptional. I'm always a little nervous when, when people say it's so, like, I, 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 we could, we could I, I don't think it's worth arguing over, what, you know, was the, was the Jewish experience in Baghdad under the Exilarchs? Not a uh, was the golden age of Spain was Jewish life in Germany you know pre war like I do think there are parallels so and and those obviously all decayed over time mm -hmm. so I, I don't I don't know how much your argument is dependent on the idea that America really was exceptional or that America went through a golden age that may now we see is is tipping away from it is that is that crucial to your case America I think was that it was or at least conceived of itself as a non-ethnic state, as mm -hmm. a, country, a country of immigrants. Uh, it ignored the fact that it had an, an, you know, an indigenous population which it had displaced, mm -hmm. uh, and that it brought another one in it, uh, as an enslaved population. Uh, but it was uh, for the people who, like us, who, who, who fitted into the immigrant mainstream. It was, it was defined as not belonging to anyone in particular. Uh, and thus belonging to everyone. And this made it very easy for us to find a place um, which was not that of a minority facing a majority. Well, I think simply... what, when you scratch that myth, what you mm -hmm. find is there was this conception that they were building a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant society that didn't define itself based on ethnicity, that eventually, after real friction, had to learn how to integrate other European immigrants from Germany, from Ireland, from Italy, uh, Jews who at first did not easily fit into that white Anglo-Saxon culture, but after a while it expanded to cover different people who got sort of under that umbrella of whiteness, whatever that means, and that other people never really. So Jews, so it, it is complicated. It, it, that myth of it's never been an ethnic, just like you were saying, you know, earlier, myths rarely bear deep scrutiny. 
in terms of their 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 narratives that are based on what happened, but they they sort of emphasize things to the exclusion of uh, uncomfortable truths. And so I, mm. I would argue that that nativism has always been, ironically, mm. at the core of the American experience, which by definition is an American is an immigrant experience. Yes, I would I would agree strongly. Yeah, um, and that um, the period that followed the Civil War made that very clear. That yeah. is the initial period of reconstruction which seemed to be an opening of america to to uh, to liberated black people then closed very quickly in the south and interestingly enough as the south became closed in the reconstruction period you know the situation of jews was far more fragile in the, in, in that area of the country i think than people fully appreciate um, in the article, I refer to the uh, film Driving Miss Daisy, mm-hmm. uh, which, if you think about it, is actually a, a really uh, thoughtful sort of reflection on the fragility of the Jewish experience in the South, um, that although this is a wealthy family um, with uh, black servants, um, um, they're constantly being subjected to the same kind of white racism which the black driver, who uh, uh, Morgan Friedman brilliantly mm-hmm. plays, uh, was a friend of, uh, of um, Jessica Tandy, uh, and then tries to kind of comfort her when she's not able to go to synagogue because there was a bombing there, mm-hmm. uh, the Atlanta bombing. This was a film done in the 80s, uh, and, and she's in denial. She's yeah. a German in denial, and he's saying, look, it's the same thing. It, they did it to our church. I said, no, no, it's not the same thing at all. Uh, so it's an extraordinary kind of scene if you think about it in the context of current uh, uh, developments in America. Of course, the film's uh, been canceled, you know. It's it's an example mm-hmm. of, uh, of a white of, fantasy of excusing racism. Yeah. Well, but the whole point of the film is that they're not white. <laughs> I, I, I understand. But, uh, but, but in, in, the, in the horseshoe on the left, the Jews yeah, are white. It's on the horseshoe yeah. on the right that the Jews aren't white. Yeah, even Ethiopian yeah. Jews are. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Arab Jews, yeah. America, the world, everyone's white. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, it, there's also Brandy Newman songs. I don't know if you've heard any of them. There's a song called Dixie Flyer. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a really lovely song about his mother taking the kids it's during or immediately after the first, the Second World War, taking the kids back. Louisiana, where she's from, and being greeted by family who are described all dressed in black. You assume some of them are religious. Uh, and then how they were drinking whiskey in the back of a truck, just like Gentiles, of a car, just like Gentiles do. Uh, we really wanted to be Gentiles. Who, who wouldn't want to be there? You know, in other words, the it's passed over completely in his music and yeah. um, involvement in things Jewish as minor. It's a surprisingly thoughtful sort of reflection on the discomfort of... I would put into uh, that, if, if we're giving uh, popu- pop- popular music examples, I would say Jill Sobiel's Attic song, mm-hmm. where she's reflecting on who, I, you know, I assume a non-Jewish boyfriend and, or partner, and she's wondering, mm-hmm. would you have hidden me in your attic when they came down the street in their, in their jackboots? You know, I wonder... Yeah. But the, the, the experience in the South is, is one thing. In the North, it was very different, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, this, this kind of racial hierarchy worked very differently, was enforced in a different way, and Jews were very much part of the mainstream in the main Amer- cities like New York and Chicago and even in some of the smaller towns. This isn't to say there wasn't anti-Semitism, but there wasn't, there wasn't the sense of being in a, a, in a fragile position 
each generation took bigger steps than the previous one to full integration. Uh, mm -hmm. The option of uh, intermarriage and forgetting just entirely your ethnic background or treating it as one in a kind of multi-faceted strand of identities was there. And most many, many people took it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, with or without completely assimilating, many, you know, many, many assimilated without losing their Jewish identity. They were, you know, celebrities like Jerry Seinfeld are profoundly and, you know, publicly Jewish without, I, I, but yeah. I would say they're well integrated and assimilated into American society. You uh, could have it both ways in that bubble period. Right. I, th I think there's also in American culture, there's, if you can fit into the stereotype of what they believe and what is for American culture, a Jew, then then it's okay. Then it's sort of approved. I think that's where Jerry Seinfeld fits in, and as well as some others. Yeah, it's a, a comedians and um, and doctors, scientists, and um, businessmen. Yes, um, these are these are images in general of, of how people you know sort of made their mark. Athletes, black black athletes, and and uh, uh, entertainers, Jewish businessmen, lawyers, and uh, comedians, and and you know Italian restaurateurs. This, this is this this is not terribly malicious. This stuff. Some, well, it is when it's when it's when it reflects um, when it reflects stratification. But I think for Jews it became fairly beneficial yeah. in the sense it didn't do us harm. What became On the contrary, harmful, they could build meaningful Jewish lives and families and communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's authentically happened in North America. Mm -hmm. That's real. That's you can't you can't there sell was that short. There was a time, like 20 years ago, when I, I my brother lives in Israel, uh, as, my, as my sister, we were talking and I was saying, well, you know, we're heading to a world, I didn't, you know, at the time Europe was 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 problematic as it always is for us. Um, See, so where basically there will be two main Jewish communities, there'll be the United States and there'll be Israel, or North America and Israel, and Israel is, it'll be very similar to the situation when we had the kind of Bavel mm -hmm. and... And, and Israel, and I was wrong uh, on several points. Bavel was never that comfortable. The situation under the Persian kings was always far more uh, problematic than I had understood because um, my knowledge of the history was imperfect. It still is. Um, but I, it seems to me the comparison to the United States is much more like Alexandria. Uh, mm. And the situation in Alexandria very quickly uh, became toxic. Uh, uh, and one can trace um, the emergence of, of significant anti-Semitism to a pre-Christian um, mm -hmm. period with um, uh, Hellenized uh, Egyptians and Greeks uh, um, uh, in conflict with the Jewish community. But that took centuries. That anti-Semitism took centuries to come out. The Jews were really integrated into as citizens who could participate as Jews. They didn't have to. They could attend the event without donating to the pagan god, or they were they were allowed as to keep their identity and still participate. That's right. So the comment that you were making is of what looked like. The city on the hill has become much more like the golden age, which is very much a, a kind of temporary phase. Yeah, this is something that there's a prospect we have to take seriously. Yeah, but I should not be looked upon in isolation. We have to contextualize. I mean, for us, the shock was not only things like the um, assault on, on the terrorist attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. uh, not Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Uh, but also the uh, even more shocking to me uh, were the were, were the, the the kind of universal 
hostility and attack which followed the Gaza war this past summer, mm-hmm. uh, where, I mean, my kids were, are reeling from this, uh, even though mm-hmm. you're in Britain, uh, for close connections uh, with, with, with people in the States, many of them in things like the publishing industry or the entertainment industry and the um, sort of automatic uh, repetition of phrases like from the river to the sea or, you know, the Jewish lobby and this kind of stuff shocked them um, profoundly, um, meant, you know, caused them to doubt their presence in what they had always regarded as a comfortable liberal left consensus. Um, and when and attempts to talk to friends about this generally led nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that friends were malicious, but they were simply um, picking up on what had become very much a, a common phrase. Now, it's interesting... It, Often this compared to the anti-apartheid movement, which the comparison doesn't doesn't work at all. Um, aside from the differences between Israel and 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 uh, South Africa, they're uh, under apartheid. Huge differences. This yeah. isn't to say that some of what Israel does isn't comparable, but as a country, it, the hostility was the analogy in, confuses more than it explains. Yeah, I was part of. I mean, I was a supporter of the anti-apartheid movement as a young mm-hmm. person growing up in Canada. Um, the, the, um, there was never hostility to South Africans who were white. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, were, there, were, there was always an assumption that a solution would have to accommodate all people there. There was never a view that, I mean, it was that, that, that the South African, that there was never talk of a South African lobby, um, et cetera. There was, a, there was, a, there was a, a view of the gov- and a correct view that the government uh, was, was, was uh, oppressive and racist and that the system had to change. There was clear distinctions between uh, the government and, and its people on all levels. I don't think that that's the case here. I think that the hostility to Jews is, is um, intense and, and, uh, and, and often Israel, um, however reasonable the criticisms are of the country, has simply become a target uh, because of the fact that it is, uh, that it is a Jewish country. That even if Israel were to become a model liberal democracy um, and end its occupation of Palestinian territory in the West Bank and the, and the um, siege of Gaza, that the situation would not change in terms of... Mm, uh, nobody would think that, yeah. Um, it, might, it might ameliorate the situation. I don't think it would change the fundamentals no. of the debate that we're seeing unfolding now. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is I think that they're deeply rooted in anti-Semitism is going back to the, to the uh, Alexandria ideas. The idea that Jews are basically illegitimate as a collectivity. That as, a collecti- as individuals, they're fine. You know, some, of the, some of my best friends. As a collectivity, they ought to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Kalva they're not a nation. Right. And therefore, this idea of there being, you know, anything that beyond the sort of most um, vegan-like denominationalism as an expression of Judaism is essentially an act of aggression, exclusion, and manipulation. Um, this is, this is and of course, these are not views held by by large numbers of people, but I think they are the core that motivates anti-Semitism. And to see, to try and 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 kind of try to try and see the hostility of Israel as a purely political phenomenon is a mistake. That is, criticism. People who criticize Israel sharply, but don't hate Jews. 
can be distinguished from people who hate Jews and 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 for whom therefore Israel is is a problem. Sort of. Um, I'm not sure. I I'm not sure. Like when, for instance, when uh, you know an American congresswoman invites people to a you know Sabbath or or joins Jews in their Sabbath uh, observance, but but then denounces the right of Israel to exist because it's a criminal anti-colonialist. They're saying, I'm okay with you saying you have a religion. I'm just not okay with you saying you're a nation that deserves self-rule. So I, I so she, and I, and I believe that Rashida Tlaib believes she's not an anti-Semite, but I think she kind of is. Well, in, we, we could get into that too. Yeah. That it, um, the role of, particularly of Jews in, in, in sort of, Active collaboration with their enemies is is not a new story either. And again, yeah. it goes back to uh, it goes back to uh, to Alexandria. So a, a fact which I discovered in the summer, reflecting on Tishbab, was that the um, was that uh, Philo, the Jewish philosopher, his uh, nephew, um, that is his brother's son, mm-hmm. um, was the second in command at the siege of Jerusalem in the Roman Legion. Whoa! I didn't know that. Yeah. Well. So this is not a new phenomenon, no. uh, and it, it extends. Uh, Torquemada came from a family of Jewish conversos, and uh, you know, in my article, I give more recent examples of Jews who joined the fascist party in Italy uh, when it wasn't explicitly anti, anti-Jewish, and, and or Jews who supported Stalin on the other side, which was the the Jewish wing of the Communist Party, which was yeah. the task of dismantling organized Jewish life. This is not new. Um, mm-hmm. What, what's going on now, um, in many ways, has has all of these parallels. What's, but history never repeats itself completely, so it's a danger to try and right. understand what's going on now as a direct continuation of what happened, say, in Europe in the 20s and 30s, or what happened in some of these earlier periods. It, it's very much, I think, conditioned by what's happening in the United States and in Western Europe. Um, I wrote an earlier article, which no one read, um, (laughs) um, uh, before COVID, because COVID has had an exacerbating experience, uh, effect on all of us. In 2019, it was published also in Fathom, but also in the Journal of Contemporary Anti-Semitism. The title of the publication is unfortunate, because you don't know whether they're for or against, but actually they're against. So uh, the title of the article was The Rebirth of the Jewish Question. It was an attempt to understand the rise of anti-Semitism on both the far right and the far left um, as very much um, conditioned by economic forces. And so uh, it's not a reductionist argument. I think anti-Semitism is baked into the fabric of um, of uh, European and, and uh, North American and Middle Eastern society. It's very much part of the West, of which the, the Middle East is a part in a cultural sense. Um, and, and its roots are deep, precisely as racism and colonialism are. Um, but um, economic factors play a crucial role in the emergence of, of anti-Semitism in, in, in more than just a, an expression of prejudice. Mm-hmm. That is, it becomes a toxic, a toxic, a violent, and possibly uh, a threatening kind of phenomenon uh, when extreme movements arise because of social and economic chaos or disruption. Uh, particularly when when regimes and and societies start to come apart in a period of major transition, that's when we are always in the most danger. Uh, well, but that's sort I'm, of the point, isn't it? That 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 
when something happens that isn't the Jews' fault and leaders use the Jews as a, the scapegoat instead of addressing and solving the actual problems, they end up, it ends up obviously being of terrible consequence to the Jews, but also ultimately to the whole society because the real problems just aren't being addressed. That, that's, that's the pattern. Yeah. And it's also the fact that we have never been, they have never been able to fit us into, into a role that they're comfortable with. And hence the idea of us as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, um, illegitimate collectivity. Now this can be in normal times, the kind of ambiguity and uncertainty you can live with. Mm -hmm. uh, in abnormal times, it becomes positively lethal. Mm -hmm. And my worry is that because of what's going on in the States, um, there is a threat of its becoming, if not lethal, far more um, menacing than it has in the past. Uh, and, well, yeah, and to I, oversimplify, it can get better, it can stay the same, or it can get worse. As nonprofits, as you said, since we're, you know, I mean, I'm a fool, but at least not, not a prophetic one. I don't know. And now, and now it's up to, I think we have to, as individuals and communities, discuss and decide which, and prepare for which of those eventualities is going to happen. Well, yes, that's, that's, that was the pur purpose of the article. It's, I yeah. think, to, to, bring, to bring to people's attention the possibility that what they're seeing now is not just another kind of spasm of, um, you know, of, of hostility to us be, that will pass again. Um, yeah, it could be. It could be. could be. I hope so. I mean, I was expecting things to fall apart in Europe much in, in the fairly near future, and they did. Right. Whether that will happen in the longer term, I don't know. We seem to be trapped in a kind of a sort of slow-moving uh, war of attrition, but the far right has actually been contained uh, in, in, in France, for example, mm -hmm. and in Germany. Even in, in, in um, dangerously authoritarian countries like Poland and uh, governments in Poland and Hungary, uh, the, the rise uh, of, of, a, of a more centrist and democratic opposition is, is, is putting them under pressure. And you see this also similarly in, uh, in the Czech Republic, where, where uh, far-right populists mm -hmm. were not specifically... As, as it was in Germany in the 20s. That's right. So that's exactly the point. Yeah. You've got, you can't confuse weather with climate. Right. So uh, what happens over a period of a, a year or two will not tell us what's really going on. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very important to keep a sort of long-term view. And that's what I was trying to do in this article. It's saying if you look at the long-term patterns that we're seeing, they're very disturbing. They're disturbing for Jews and they're disturbing for America and they're disturbing for the West. Um, and they're also disturbing for Israel because, unfortunately, yeah. I think um, under the previous government, Israel was al allowing itself uh, to be taken in uh, by by uh, a kind of um, the kind of um, strongly um, populist um, right wing anti democratic movements uh, that have caused us problems in the diaspora simply because these groups often are pro-Israel through convenience yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. That was the purpose of that article in 2019, is to warn. Um, it's, one can't sell out the diaspora in order to make um, convenient friends of neo-fascists uh, in Israel. This is a wrong move, and unfortunately our previous prime minister did that. Um, and um, 
you know, I got a lot of flack from people who, who think that um, Israel can only cho doesn't choose its friends. Well, that might be. I think uh, sometimes one has to understand what a friend is. Uh, and um, I th I, the present government shows much better sense in responding to, for example, um, the kinds of laws that the Poles have passed, the Polish government has passed. Um, uh, this, um, in the past, if I can be more explicit, uh, the Netanyahu government was happy to overlook some of the more yeah. egregious things being done in Poland, um, which, of course, there's no Jewish community there of any size. But it, it is uh, different. I don't know how the current government would handle its relationship to a President well, Trump. No, it's very clear, uh, at least uh, we see it, uh, that uh, the present government protested very strongly at the new law. At Poland? Uh, no, the, the new Israeli government. Oh, yeah. No, no, I know, but I don't know that the current well, government would, wouldn't, wouldn't have had a good relationship with President Trump. Oh, I see. Yes. Uh, I don't know how they would react to that either. I mean, I mean that's sort of... You have to, as Israeli leaders, have a good relationship to the American president. There's no, there's no doubt that we have strategic yeah. imperatives require a close relationship with the United States. There are things that we don't have to do that uh, we did do that I think it's quite, you know that are that are beyond the pale. Uh, that's that's uh, this is this is something that that really bears discussion. Mm -hmm. um, there, no, but that's are, but that's exactly what in the why I found the piece so uh, helpful and useful was. It, you you were you were saying if I look at it not from in a particular side but if I look at the problem holistically, then there are things mm. we really have to discuss and talk about. It wasn't necessarily it wasn't really prescriptive. It was descriptive, and and it argued so so, and that's why you know, and again when I when I agree or disagree with a detail here or there, but the overall picture is one that I think Jews should be really engaging in this conversation. We certainly agree on that. I think. Um, Business as usual is not really an option now. Right. And, and the, the coming elections in the United States uh, fill me with uh, anxiety. Um, uh, yeah. Which, regardless of which way they go. Uh, and it's, it's not simply a problem of elections, but what the elections reflect in the body politic and in mainstream opinion. Uh, and that's on both sides of the aisle. Well, the peaceful transition of power, which is the cornerstone of American democracy, is no longer can no longer be taken for granted. Absolutely. And while that that problem doesn't directly relate to Jews, that's your whole thesis. That it doesn't. That's not the point. The point is that if that once the fabric starts to unravel, the Jews are in the crosshairs. Yeah. Well, to, that that you can sum up very very nicely with the January the images that we all have from January sixth. Yeah. Uh, the people who were marching in front of the cameras on the way to smash up the uh, the Capitol. Um, some of these people were wearing uh, Nazi uh, and neo-Nazi uh, uh, T-shirts and carrying uh, uh, QAnon placards, which, yeah. uh, which which are you know would fit in well in in in, in traditional Nazi and fascist rallies. Um, this 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 is not a trivial uh, kind of current in uh, the Trumpian base. Uh, and the Republican Party has made it very clear that the, these, the, you know, that it is going to accommodate these people, and they, these people are a defining edge of, of of opinion on that side of the spectrum. Um, we have we have uh, not not identical by any means, but but counterpart problems on in the Democratic Party, um, mm -hmm, where there's sure. a, an anti-colonialist left, as it likes to uh, describe itself. 
uh, for whom progressive economic and social legislation are only part of their concerns. I mean, the, uh, to the extent that they are concerns, they're very well expressed by people like Bernie Sanders and um, uh, Elizabeth Warren, who are free of this, this, this uh, what can agree or disagree with some of their views on the Middle East or anything else. They're certainly free of this uh, focus on, uh, on, on woke uh, anti-colonial um, uh, hostility to Israel. Whether you agree uh, with or agree with particular positions, they don't seem to be against Western civilization as, an, no. as the source of evil in the world. Yeah. That's right. But you do have a not inconsequential group that is increasingly influential within the yeah. democratic has taken over large swaths of opinion uh, in 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 the entertainment industry and in university life. Yep. In academic departments that are not directly connected with the sciences, uh, but are in the humanities and social sciences, where um, the spectrum of opinion has shifted into this uh, neo-Stalinist idea of, of, of um, which unfortunately is formulated in identity politics as well. So you have identity politics displacing class politics on both the right and the left. And as dogma, um, not as political argument. That's correct. That is to say that one's ethnic identity is really the basis of one's moral standing and one's mm -hmm. political value. You have which is on, racism. On the, on the right. Yes. Yeah. And it is when identity politics is dominant, politics, rational politics is destroyed. Uh, uh, the the whole basis for for political uh, discussion becomes uh, becomes essentially corrupted and debased. And I think you're seeing that increasingly. Uh, and 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 uh, this was a very much the concern of that uh, of the earlier article uh, to to bring that force out, as well as some other things I've written in the past. Uh, uh, it, it's the left off has made the mistake in the past in the 60s of substituting identity politics for class politics and the result was was always that the right managed to expropriate it and turn it into a, a totally destructive weapon now you're seeing both sides I think um, mm -hmm. undercutting the basis of, of, of rational political discussion completely I mean if where you stand politically and and your worth as a person is it is in large measure determined by your ethnic background. Um, we're going to lose <laughs> no matter what. Uh, we have no chance. You've mentioned yeah. before um, your kids were facing um, probably other people you know as well were facing sort of um, tension between them and friends or or just their community around, especially around the mm -hmm. what happened in May and Israel's war and everything. So I was wondering. If you what what kind of advice did you give them? I mean, it's very hard to decide that you're going to have uh, I don't know the that you take the decision to say that I'm going to explain everything that you explained in the article to my friend or to my neighbor who's already made up their mind about Israel, maybe or already made up their political uh, agenda. Um, so, and 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 I know that most American Jews, or maybe not most, but many that I come across don't necessarily want to get up on the soapbox and be the, you know, the speak into the microphone and be the voice um, and and explain all this to everybody. Um, so I don't know. I was wondering if there's what kind of advice did you give them? What kind of advice would you give uh, people who are sort of in that tension right now? Good question. I mean, and my, my kids are who are grown are extremely robust and very and um, <laughs> quite aware of that. So I find that they. They not only don't require my advice, but they tend to resent it. Um, <laughs> they're not shy about telling me that. Um, 
the only the only point at which I'm occasionally consulted is exactly questions on AI, and they want <laughs> short technical responses in language they can understand, and anything beyond that, I'm told that's enough, Dad. Thanks. Um, <laughs> the the uh, I think that they what they went through in the summer um, was not all. Uh, one lives in Israel, so for him it was less of an issue. Um, the three here. Um, one was expecting it. She works for Jew, as, a, as an executive for Jewish cultural organizations. Two younger ones were quite shocked, um, but had had encountered it before at universities. Less as a mm-hmm. concern. What was interesting is that they went through very much what I went through when I you know first encountered this on as as a left winger, as a student activist in, in in the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement in the sixties. Uh, for it was less. It was less pronounced in, in my time than in theirs, and it, it, it was certainly not part of the liberal left. Uh, the, the, the kind of cultural memes, if you can call them that, that in which Israel is Israel villain and Jews as manipulators, the, the, the currency with which that emerged was uh, shocked them, I think, to a great it, because of the intensity of the hatred. And there were big demonstrations with, uh, with, with fairly classic sort of imagery. Um, they managed to handle it quite effectively, interestingly enough. They had no trouble in recognizing, you know, the, the prejudice and the racism uh, and distinguishing it from, from, from genuinely reasonable critical comment. Um, they dumped some of their friends. Uh, I, mean, mm. it was, I think we all had that experience here with people who you not only defriended them on Facebook, you just stopped anything but the most superficial, you know, encounter with them because... When something that deep comes along, uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to um, to re- to repair a friendship. Uh, to some extent, they'd been through it before because we had lived through several many years of Corbyn here. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Corbyn, when when Corbyn took over the Labour Party, this became um, a very real issue in a mainstream political party. And we are you know long-standing Labour family, so it became impossible to not only belong but to vote for the Labour Party uh, and um, trying to this, explain this to people who said, well, you know, this is a provincial concern. Um, this, uh, this, was, this was quite, quite a problem. Uh, my my uh, youngest daughter actually lives in Corbyn's constituency and confronted him in, when he was out campaigning uh, on, on these issues, and she's very much a Labour person. Uh, so, so it, they they are already kind of experienced in this, um, and they're fairly seasoned, and they're much cooler and smarter than I am in dealing mm-hmm. with it on a, their streetwise. Um, my son, I know it was very hurtful and very problematic. But on the other hand, I don't think it threw them largely because of previous experience and and their their own sort of resources in coping with it. They know exactly who they are. You know, yeah. Live in different countries. Their Jewish identity is a core, and it's, there's not, there's certain things that you don't give up on. Uh, and and um, they've been through university. They had seen and endured the the, the stuff uh, to a certain extent. There's also a lot of filtering out and and you know setting aside in order just to survive. I'm seeing it now even in my oldest granddaughter, uh, who's approaching university age. Uh, she's about to do a gap year. Uh, um, actually, she will be in Israel next week, um, not on her gap year, but visiting family, but uh, who's very much part of this kind of 
woke progressive generation, but, uh, you know, where's Amagen David and uh, is very much aware of, of who she is and what her background is. She's Hebrew speaking. Uh, and and I, we are all dreading when she encounters this on university life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think she's already aware of it. Again, the Corbyn era has has kind of galvanized British Jews in a way that, that it hadn't before. And it produced a kind of robust response uh, amongst the mainstream who, in a way that it hadn't before. Um, mm-hmm. So and it clarified, I think, to many people, you know, where we stand uh, uh, with respect to, to certain parts of the population. Um, the rise of the far right here is actually less threat, less of a, a threat than it is in America. It's the, it tends to be the far left, which is more threatening here. Um, mm-hmm. The imagery, the, 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 the um, um, malicious accusations and the conspiracy theories are the same. They're interchangeable from left to right. I mean, Corbyn's brother is an anti-vaxxer who go, who's, who's part of a kind of QAnon type group. Uh, I don't think QAnon itself, but trades in these kinds of uh, attitudes. So, so I, I, I didn't need to give them advice. I, they came to the conclusions of themselves. And I think the same thing will happen with North American Jews after a certain period of time. The problem is the shock of, I mean, I think the shock of discovering the depth of hostility and, the, the, and, and realizing that, the, that, that it is much more than someone holding views that you find objectionable, that there are social forces that you're up against and you cannot uh, simply um, either ignore them or, 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 or change them, uh, that you have to come to terms with them, that this is really, um, that this might produce a certain amount of trauma, I think, if it isn't already doing so. So it's not places where you used to go and were welcome are no longer necessarily the places that welcome you anymore. This has become clear in the university over at least the last 10 or 15 years. The price of admission to you know, what are considered progressive circles with enlightened views is now such that many people will not be able to pay it. And those who do put themselves beyond the pale and in a situation that becomes increasingly untenable and precarious even for them. Which is also um, precedented. Those both of those approaches are precedented mm-hmm. in Europe and Russia. When you know, a hundred years ago, when these things were, people mm-hmm. took either approach. Yes, I, that's Zionism right. arose in that mm-hmm. world, making a very similar diagnosis to yours. Which I, you know, look, let's and we're over time, and we've imposed on your time. So, yeah, I didn't come up with it independently. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and and you know, part of I have to admit, part of why uh, we wanted to to hash out the pieces. It's a little bit of confirmation bias is that, you know, I really, I really, it resonated and that's sort of how I've been looking, mm-hmm. but it was very well articulated. You know, mm-hmm. I also wrote a piece that nobody read in, in a blog in the Times of Israel called The Return of the Jewish Question. Like, I, I, I think we're, we're seeing things similarly. And the issue is, I think it has to be a broader discussion. I think Jewish communities have to be openly discussing it from that angle. And it hurts me when I hear people arguing about, you know, whether we'll find better allies on the left or on the right. I don't know that that's exactly the right framing of the conversation. I, I found your frame framing to be much more open and honest and I found and I think helpful in, in a sort of disturbing way. Well thank you. I'm I'm glad that um you found some value in it. I mean I wrote it simply because uh these are things that that I live with on a daily basis, uh, that, yeah. that 
And it came, I think, in part, if I can, I know you're over time, but as I, growing up in Canada, my, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, my grandparents' world was the old world. And yeah. I another generation, the new world, and I couldn't fathom what they had been through and, you know, what that world was like. And I was just happy that I wasn't, that, that I could only, you know, that I, that I had them and their culture, but I didn't have to live in that world. I could live in this new world. And coming to Britain um, and traveling and I mean, living in all of these different places and getting older and having children and grand, what has become increasingly clear to me is that my, the distance between me and their, their history is, is, is very minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, I am the first member of my generation, uh, not first, I am the first generation for whom English was the first language, mm-hmm. even though my parents speakers English was not their first language it was Yiddish speaking all the way back and Hebrew we all we all knew Hebrew um, that that it's the difference of you know two decades between me and the people who you know who, who either stayed behind and either didn't survive or lived in you know under under Soviet regime uh, and 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 me uh, that the, my grandparents are not far from me that that the countries they came from are close by uh, and that the history hasn't stopped, uh, and this this <laughs> is troublesome and bothersome. But it's also, unfortunately, those are the facts. Um, you do what you want with the history. You know, right. You're not to adopt one view or another, but at least to recognize the facts. And the article came out of you know these. When you look around you, you can't extricate yourself from that flow. You have to do, recognize where you are before you decide where you're going. So uh, if, if, if that helped, if my own personal sort of concerns, which brought about that article, um, are such that, you know, you, you feel them too, and you saw the article as a useful attempt to kind of deal with the history that we're all dealing with, I'm, I'm very pleased, and it was a success. Yeah, 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 very much so, very much so. Mm-hmm. Although, again, and I, you know, I don't want to end on a downer, but, you know, when Jabotinsky in 38 in Warsaw warned the Jews, he says, I see, it's not that you don't believe me. It's that you can't take me seriously because you're overwhelmed by your daily worries and you're just not looking at the big picture. That's that's where I'm left with my worry that you, that that people will read it and then say, "Wow, that sounds terrible," and then it won't they won't process well, or digest it. You know, the few reactions I've gotten have all been negative, uh, with exception of family, and they you know that's um, less. Oh, negative. really? It's hard. But they, they've, uh, well, it's hard to hear. It's hard for people to hear. I think it's a hard statement to make. It's true, but hard. People are saying well, it's ridiculous overstatement. It's hysteria. You are, you know, this has nothing. And anyway, the MAGA guys are not the the, the people who stormed January the sixth. I said, well, then who did? Um, and you know, uh, this is this is the situation on both the left and the right is nowhere near as dire. And this is an overstatement. That this is the kind of reaction I've I've been getting in the mm-hmm. in the places where people have actually responded. Uh, so yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe maybe it is. I, I hope so. I, yeah, that would be good. I don't want to be right. I don't yeah. want to be right. In terms of the deepest understanding of the sort of situation that renders us vulnerable to this kind of stuff, it's not Jabotinsky and it's it's not Herzl and it's not um, Borokhov, it's uh, Pinsker. Ah. Mm. Emancipation. It is written by an assimilated liberal Jew who lived through a series of pogroms in the Ukraine in the middle of the 19th century and became involved with Chovavetzion. And what he wrote was actually not a Zionist book, but a territorialist book. And it was an attempt to understand precisely 
you know, why this thing kept recurring and how you respond to it. Uh, and it's, it, it actually reads like a paradigm of liberation political writing. It anticipates uh -huh. a lot of the stuff that uh, Marcus Garvey and uh, Malcolm X, uh -huh. as well as uh, the, the various anti-colonialist leaders wrote, but written specifically in terms of, of the reality of Jewish history as he understood it in, in Europe and, and in North Africa. And he connects it to the struggles of, of black people uh, at the time against, against uh, exclusion. And, and it's not very long, and it's very readable, and it's still super relevant. It, it is absolutely the deepest, uh, most interesting and insightful account of, of the vulnerability of the Jewish position and why yeah. it keeps... Uh, and, and the diagnosis is one we, we seem all to agree on. Okay, well, now we get it. It took us over an hour, but we got it. I, mm -hmm. I you know... Pinsker, my colleagues often tease me about how how much Pinsker is my guru. So now I see why you're you, yeah. So that's why it resonated. I do think you're right, and I wasn't even conscious of it. It was a Pinskeresque analysis. My values come from labor uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and and the Chadam. Mm -hmm. My understanding of the situation is coming straight out of Pinsker. Mm -hmm. So yes, I mean, if he's your guru, then I think you're you're, you're navigating. Yeah. Well, I think I think in our intellectual life, you know, we used to used to have this uh, in commercials, you know, for breakfast cereal, used to call a thing, you know, this is part of your well balanced diet. I yeah. think intellectually, it's important to have a well balanced diet. It should it should be from a broad range. So it doesn't. It's not. I'm a you know. I follow only a chadaam. It's that I take this from there and this from there. So, I, I uh, yeah. But you're that's that's the biggest compliment I can give your piece. I think it was Pinskeresque. Now that I and I don't know why it didn't occur to me before. But uh, I take that huge compliment. Yeah. yeah. And what I what I would say for for all of the despair, et cetera, et cetera, we're in a totally different position. We have yeah. an army to defend us. Boom. Yeah. Uh, we're in a post states, I mean a post uh, nineteen forty-eight situation. So the country is radically imperfect uh, and not in any way immune from the the problems of other countries, but we do have a place. Yep. Mm-hmm. The strategy to build communities for Jews to to build meaningful Jewish lives so far in the in recent modern history were to live in liberal democracies where that space was created, or to live in a Jewish state where obviously it's created. And Zionists feel that one strategy won't work in the long run. So you don't you don't have to look at it as a Zionist, but that's it's sort of I think why the piece resonated, because I do, I I do look at the world through those, through mm. that lens. So mm -hmm. again, thank you for your insight. Thank you for your articulation. Thank you for your time, especially since we what, we took you for much longer than we said we would. Fascinating discussion. Really enjoyed it. Talking to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Me too. And we don't have to log off, but I'm going to stop the recording because that's the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the state of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.